to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, we have seen over the course of the last couple of Sundays since beginning the season of Ordinary Time that through the reading selected, the Church is providing us with basic instruction on what it means to live in accordance with our nature as human creatures, and more specifically, what it means to live as a human creature who, by God's grace, has become a Christian. That is not to say that to be a human creature and to be a Christian are discontinuous with one another, for, as St. Thomas Aquinas says in Article 8 of the opening question of his Summa Theologica, grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. We have insisted on the same fact over the last couple of weekends by demonstrating how the logic and dynamics of God's work of creation are continuous with his work of salvation. Last weekend, this truth was made clear to us in discussing what we have called the missional identity of the human creature. This was seen in our conversations surrounding the calling of the apostles and Jonah last weekend. And this in two ways. First, we saw how just as God once called Peter, Andrew, James, and John into existence through his word when creating them, so now he called them to be recreated to experience salvation by calling them to repentance and a life of discipleship through the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. In addition, we saw how by spending three days and nights in the belly of a whale before being returned to shore and fulfilling his mission, the prophet Jonah not only prefigures the paschal mystery of the Son of God incarnate, but also prefigures how the human creature is enabled to fulfill its created purpose by participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This weekend, our catechesis on how to live out our created and missional identities continues. And this weekend, we learn that while our created and missional identities are unique to each of us, we do share some aspects in common precisely because we share in the one saving mystery of the Son of God incarnate. Our first reading for this weekend comes from chapter 18 of the book of Deuteronomy. It comes from the portion of Deuteronomy where the Deuteronomic Code is presented, chapters 12 through 28. This code is far-reaching, touching nearly every aspect of life, from how the people are to worship, how they are to deal with debt, and how they are to conduct themselves in war. Importantly, the Deuteronomic Code is presented immediately following the exposition of God's covenant with the people of Israel in chapters 1 to 11. Thus, the Deuteronomic Code is to be understood as articulating in detail how the people are to live out their covenantal relationship with God, day to day, in every aspect of their lives. The key idea here is that if the covenantal relationship is lived out, the actions of the people, both individually and collectively, are themselves an expression of their covenantal relationship with God. Said differently, the lives of the people of Israel were meant to manifest the God whom they loved and worshipped, 
and thereby made that God, what he was like and what he desired for the human family, known to the world. Such was one way the people of Israel were to be a blessing for the nations of the earth, in accordance with one of the covenantal promises God had first made to Abraham. In your descendants, all the nations of the earth will find blessing. This is an important detail, for we will see how the same holds true in the new and everlasting covenant affected by the paschal mystery of Christ and the people he makes his own. The section we read today from Deuteronomy falls within the larger section within chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, where Moses is discussing the future prophets of the people. The verses preceding our passage for today are important in terms of the discussion at hand, for they provide it with the proper immediate context of what is said. In those verses, Moses says to the people, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of the nations there. Moses goes on to name child sacrifice, divination, soothsaying, sorcery, and seeking counsel from dead spirits. Instead, Moses tells the people of Israel, You must be altogether sincere with the Lord your God. In other words, the people must trust in God and live their covenantal relationship with Him faithfully and not go chasing after the favor of some other God or try to find some way to tell them what the future holds so that they might control it. Our passage for today follows. There Moses continues, saying, A prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kindred. That is the one to whom you shall listen. These words, spoken by Moses, carry a twofold sense. The first sense is literal. Moses is speaking of the line of authentic prophets who will succeed him in leading the people of Israel. And what are these prophets to do? I think quite often when we hear the word prophet, we immediately think of those with the gift of foretelling future events. And to be sure, in some cases this is true. However, within the context of scripture, to be a prophet means most basically to be a teacher. As the late scholar of the Old Testament, Bernard Asen wrote, For the Jewish people, the prophets are the prime interpreters of the Torah. In other words, the prophets are the interpreters of scripture for the people. Consequently, they are to do for the people of Israel precisely what we have just recounted Moses as doing. They are to remind the people of their covenantal relationship with God and explain to them how they are to live that relationship faithfully, day to day, in every single aspect of their lives. In this work of interpretation, Moses tells the people that the prophets will be inspired by God. In verse 18, Moses continues to speak on God's behalf, saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their kindred, and will put my words into the mouth of the prophet. The prophet shall tell them all that I command. Next, two warnings follow, one for the people and one for the prophets. Anyone who will not listen to my words, which the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will hold accountable for it, God says through Moses, and then adds, but if a prophet presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Notice that the warnings for both are given with respect to God's word. The people who do not listen obediently to God's word, and the prophet who does not speak God's word obediently, likewise experience disaster, death. These warnings echo once again what we have heard the last two weekends, 
that when we separate ourselves from God, the source of our life as human creatures, we experience disaster. We experience the spiritual death of self-disintegration. For cut off from the God who gives life meaning, our lives become meaningless as we strive to determine our own purpose in life. Important for our discussion today, these verses demonstrate that the calling of the prophet of God is a high one, a demanding one. The prophets are to say everything God tells them to, but not tell the people more than God has spoken to them. Both are equally challenging, for both demand a great deal of courage. Time and again, the prophets will be asked by God to deliver messages of judgment, of telling the people that they have transgressed the law and thereby their covenantal relationship with God. The prophets will, therefore, also have to call the people to repentance, to turn their lives around and live out their covenantal relationship with God faithfully once again. However, the prophets are also not to add more than what is faithful to God's word. In other words, they shall neither make up what they do not know, and they shall not presume to speak on their own authority. In this way, the prophets also speak to the people of the future, pointing out to them the way that they should move forward. Now, if there is anything in us that feels that this is an easy task, consider whether or not it is easy to speak the truth of God's word to people who we know reject it. How difficult is it today to simply assert that there is such a thing as objective truth? How difficult is it today to tell people that they are not to determine their own purpose, or create their own identities, when everyone seems to be doing just that? How difficult is it to say no, we won't be participating in that sporting event because we have to go to Mass on Sunday? How difficult is it when a friend or a loved one comes to you and tells you that they are about to do or have done something that is against the way we are told to live as Christians? It could have to do with anything from how they live their relationships to how they spend their time and money. In all of these situations, the temptation is either to not say anything at all, to not speak everything that God has told us, or, alternatively, to find a quick way to add something of our own, to soften the proverbial blow, to sugarcoat God's word so that it is not so offensive. When considered in this way, it becomes clear how difficult it is to carry out the mission of the prophet and the great courage necessary to do so. All that has been said thus far has to do with the literal meaning of verse 15 of the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, where Moses says, A prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kindred. That is the one to whom you shall listen. But there is another sense in these words, and it is known as the allegorical sense. The allegorical sense of scripture is when an individual, an object, a message, or an event in the Old Testament points ahead prefigures something in the New Testament. In addition to referring to all those of the authentic prophetic tradition of Israel, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, to name but a few, these words also refer to the coming Messiah, the incarnate Son of God. As true God made true flesh, the incarnate Son is indeed one raised up from among the people, as Moses had said. However, as the eternally begotten Son of the Father, Jesus Christ is also the word through whom all things were created and are held together, as John tells us in his famous prologue, and as St. Paul tells us in his first chapter of his letter to the Colossians. Thus, the incarnate Son's very life is prophetic, 
for it most perfectly reveals that the human creature was created to live in perfect communion with God, and in this, the human creature finds its fulfillment. Moreover, as incarnate word, the words spoken by Christ not only reveal the reality of existence to us so that we might live in accordance with it, but his words accomplish what he speaks, as the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 11 of the book which bears his name. For he is the divine word which creates reality. This is what we witness in our gospel reading for today from the first chapter of the gospel of Mark, verses 21 through 28. In verse 21, we find Jesus carrying out the basic mission of the prophets of Israel. We are told, Then they came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Jesus is interpreting the scripture for the people, teaching them what it means and how to live it out authentically. However, his teaching is not the same as any other teacher in Israel. For in verse 22 we read, The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. What exactly this means isn't clear at this point in the passage, and in the very next verse we are told, In their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. To the demon, Jesus responds, Quiet, come out of him. And the unclean spirit obeyed, convulsed the man, and left him. The way the passage reads, it's almost as if this scene has been disrupted. As if one second we were hearing about Jesus teaching with authority, and just when we were asking what this means, this possessed man shows up and distracts us. If we're not careful here, we might think that the evangelist has simply lost focus in relating the gospel to us. However, what seems an interruption is actually Mark providing us with an example of what it means for Jesus to teach with authority and not as the scribes. In verses 27 through 28, the idea is reiterated and deepened. All were amazed and asked one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. His fame spread everywhere throughout the whole region of Galilee. As deacon and professor of theology Charles A. Boberts explains in his work on the Gospel of Mark, what appears to be confusion is an intentional juxtaposition on the evangelist's part, demonstrating the confrontation between the Spirit of God that descended upon Jesus at his baptism and the spirit of chaos, Satan, that opposed Jesus in the wilderness. In other words, Jesus' teaching does the very same thing that the exorcism does, though in a different arena of life. It sets into order and harmony those things that have been thrown into chaos by sin. Consequently, Jesus' teaching has the power to heal the whole of our lives, just as his words healed the possessed man, and this on both individual and communal levels of life. However, as human creatures endowed with the gift of free will, we will only experience this healing if we listen to what Jesus teaches us attentively and obediently. How do we do this? Well, there's a lot to say here, but I will limit myself to two points for today. The first comes from what has preceded this episode in the Gospel of Mark. Recall that last Sunday, when calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be fishers of men, we discovered that the apostles were to learn what this meant by living lives of discipleship, by following Jesus, by participating in and imitating his life. If we move backward from there in the Gospel of Mark, 
we run into Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, preceded by his baptism. It is no accident that the baptism of our Lord is celebrated at the very beginning of ordinary time, when the church helps us get back to the basics of the Christian life of discipleship. For it is here that our Christian life begins. Through the sacrament of baptism, we are given a share in Christ's life by sacramentally participating in his paschal mystery, immersed three times in water, effecting our death to sin and rising to new life in Christ. The Christian rite of baptism includes a prayer of exorcism that the one baptized might be set free from the power of sin, just previous to the baptism proper. And after the baptism proper, the one baptized receives a candle, symbolizing that they are to walk always as children of the light. The rite of Epitha immediately follows, where the celebrant prays, The Lord Jesus made the deaf hear and the dumb speak. May he soon touch your ears to receive his word, and your mouth to proclaim his faith, to the praise and glory of God the Father. Amen. In all of this, we see that by giving us a share in the life of Christ, the sacrament of baptism enables us to live prophetically, for we are to live as children of the light by listening to God's word and to proclaim the very same word in action and speech. This leads us to the second point found in our second reading for today from chapter 7 of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. There, in verses 32 through 35, Paul emphasizes the desire for Christians to be free from anxiety, together with the need to adhere to the Lord without distraction. Thus, he warns his readers that even the married life itself can provide difficulties and distractions when it comes to living the gospel. For, he says, an unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. Without getting into a discussion on the married life on the one hand and the single or religious life on the other, which this passage indeed opens up to, we might take Paul's point very basically here. Paul's recommendation, and he emphasizes in verse 35 that it is a recommendation and not a requirement for Christian living, is based on the fact that the Christian must strive to live the whole of life for God, directing all that one says and does toward God, and doing all for his greater glory, just as Christ did. To live in this way is to live a prophetic life. Why? For two reasons. First, living in this way orders the whole of life, not just Sunday mornings for an hour, towards relationship with God. Everything else in life becomes subordinate to our relationship with God, such that if it does not fit, it must be eliminated. An easy example here is sports on Sunday something all too common today. The Christian will in no way skip Mass on Sunday for a sporting event, or anything else for that matter, because the relationship with God comes first. And secondly, to direct all that we do in life, relationships, jobs, etc., toward God, is living prophetically because it teaches those around us what lies in our future. That to God is precisely where all of history is going. That, as we pray in the creed every Sunday, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. My friends, this Sunday we learn another key component of what it means to be a human creature, and to have a created and missional identity accordingly. 
and it is an element of our created identities that is quite weighty. For this Sunday, we are taught that all have been called to live prophetically. To be sure, this places a great demand upon us, at times requiring a good deal of courage. For as discussed, it will mean living differently from the rest of the world and speaking the truth of God's word, even when uncomfortable. But it also reveals God's mercy towards us and makes us a vehicle of that very mercy. For it reveals that no matter where we are in life, no matter what we've done, God's steadfast love and created purpose for us remains, and He has sent His Son to save us, that we might live in His mercy as proof. Accordingly, we need not live in the desert or travel afar to live prophetic lives. We live prophetically in our homes, at work, in the classroom, and on the playground by doing all things for the glory of God. What does this look like? It looks like the works of mercy. It looks like giving food to the hungry, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, teaching those who do not know about God's loving mercy, counseling those in doubt, and praying for this world which God so loves. To do these things is to live prophetically, for all of these actions enable us daily to remind the world that God has made us for himself, and our heart will remain restless until it rests eternally in his loving embrace. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.